Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to the podcast. This is Michelle W. Malkin, your host. And our guest today is Mark S. Young, who is the Managing Director of the JTS Davidson School Leadership Commons. Mark's been at JTS for a few years, previously serving as the Davidson School's Director of Alumni Engagement. Before that, as a Program Director for the School's Experiential Learning Initiative, where he launched the Jewish Experiential Leadership Institute for JCC Professionals. And Mark also serves on the board of JPRO. He's done a lot of other things that are included on his bio on our website. It's whoyouknowpodcast.wordpress.com. And Mark has published a number of articles on Jewish philanthropy and done an Eli talk. For those who are not familiar with what those are, it's a Jewish TED Talk style uh, presentation. And what really struck me about wanting to have Mark on the program was his work in the HR side of Jewish nonprofits. And when I say that, pay, time off, and things like that, that Mark will, will talk a little bit more about um, his work, not only with the Davidson School, but also in having discussions with nonprofits about the way that they handle these issues. So Mark, welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. Michelle, it's really wonderful to be here. Um, and uh, it's an honor to talk about what is wonderful about the field of being, you know, in a Jewish professional and how we can do better, which I think is my main motivation into all of the HR related discussions that I try to promote and advocate for on places like Jewish Philanthropy and Eli Talks. Yeah, I love to just start with something that's really influenced you, something that really sticks out in your mind as a pivotal point in your own career as to what set you on this track or gave you this particular passion uh, or allowed you to do the work that you're currently engaged in doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll speak, speak to three or four. You know, I, I think some of our earliest experiences in life impact us much more than we think they do. Um, and I'll start with my first job when I was six years old. And my mother was a Jewish educator for f- probably 40 years. And uh, she was teaching fourth grade at a North Shore Jewish Center in Stony Brook, New York, Port Jefferson, New York. And I was her assistant at six. She took me and I like distributed the sheets and, you know, tried to look all cute to the nine-year-olds. But I, but I, I, upon reflection, um, many, many years later, realized that I was just very much in admiration of and appreciative for my mom's dedication to not only Jewish education, but to, wor- to the work that she was doing that she cared so much about. And it was um, no surprise that Mrs. Young was always a favorite among her learners, whether in New York or when we moved to Cleveland, Ohio, when I was seven. Um, and I-, I think that influenced me more than I-, I could realize. I never planned on being a Jewish educator. I always loved, you know, being in youth group in USY. And I loved going to Camp Wise, which was the JCC summer camp in Cleveland, kind of grew up to the level of song leader and Jewish programmer, which is always a fun thing to do at a Jewish summer camp. But I never intended for it to be my career. But I think deep down, I think I did. I didn't really admit that to myself until somewhere in my 20s or maybe even around 29, 30. What did you think you were going to do? I wanted to be a singer-songwriter for a while. I also wanted to be a psychologist. In college, and this was another influence, 
I really got interested into why we do what we do. And that was, you know, a question that led me to major in psych, but then I really kind of geared to that into the business perspective. Why do we do what we do? What are we motivated to do the jobs that we do? And why are we motivated to do our jobs? And what successful motivation strategies are out there in order for businesses and organizations and the people in them to be be very successful? So that's what got me in kind of to the HR part of my work. My sister works in HR in the corporate sector. I was taking very interesting classes at, at McGill in Montreal where I went to undergrad. Um, and then I landed um, a job, my first job out of school at the 92nd Street Y in the HR department. And they were looking for their first ever recruiter. And I got my job through networking, uh, which I'm very actually intentional to share because I think no matter uh, we could talk about how to find a great job. It's always a little bit of luck in networking. It's it's not just the great Absolutely. resume. And uh, my boss at the time taught me a really interesting lesson. Um, and, you know, HR is not a huge thing or wasn't a huge thing 13 years ago in most Jewish community centers or Jewish organizations. Um, my boss, Tony, who worked in uh, the corporate sector before the Y, had this rule. He says, when any staff person walks in to our office, it's Disneyland. We could have been working on other things. We could have been focused on other tasks. But when they walk in, whether they have an employee relations, relations issue, are looking for a job, or just looking for a form to fill out, it's all about them. And they need to feel right. like the center of our attention. Because when they leave, they're going to feel valued. They're going to feel like we matter. And they're going to come back to us. And they're going to do a better job for the why and also a better job for the Jewish people and the, the larger mission. Absolutely. Um, that really stuck with me. How can we think of um, our staff in our Jewish organizations, uh, opportunities to value them, and so they feel like they're in Disneyland when they're at work? Because uh, I think that is a much more powerful motivation than money or you know, positive feedback. Uh, though, as we can talk about a little later, Michelle, I do very, care, very much care about how we treat compensation in our field. Right. So those are a couple of influences. I would say some mentors have been huge influences for me, folks that have believed in me and said, you know, you're really good at this. Or, you know, even just my heart, you know, my, my one major job outside of the Jewish world was two years at Episcopal Social Services in HR, which was good to get the perspective outside the Jewish world. But I very quickly learned that I can find passion in something outside the Jewish world, but I wasn't as passionate about it, which was an influence that led me back to eventually my job at JTS and where I've been really happy at the last six and a half years. Yeah, I haven't had that pleasure, unfortunately, of, I mean, little things here and there, but really working outside the Jewish community to to rediscover that passion. But very, very interesting that you had that experience. And it seems like a lot of your background in how you were looking at HR has to do with sort of the business sector. I know you talk in your, your Eli talk a little bit about bringing some, or in a few of your different articles, bringing some of the practices that we see in other places into our Jewish organized world. Let's jump into your most recent article, which talked about a little bit about pay transparency and when we're hiring people that we shouldn't ask them for their salary history. Is that, I guess, the gist of what your, your article focused around? Correct. So, you know, in writing kind of lofty ideas, the $54,000 strategy that published through almost four years ago was in response to a question that the Journal of Jewish Communal Service asked, what's your big and bold solution to, you know, fixing the ails of the Jewish world? Um, And I said, we just need to pay our staff more and and then some. Mm -hmm. Um, 
very there's some specificity in there in subsequent articles, but it's a it's a lofty and admittedly fairly abstract um, idea at least to start. So I've always wanted to challenge myself to figure out what are the even you know concrete, even small you know minutia steps that we can do to change the culture in our field to properly value all of our staff. Our staff being vast majority female, even though the males uh, typically continue to dominate the top. So I was speaking with an alumni of the Davidson School, an alumna of the Davidson School, Tehila Eisenstadt, and it had just come out, I think, in August of this year, both Massachusetts passing the law saying that if you think that you're required not to ask what someone's current salary is, because that actually furthers bias um, mm. towards pay inequity. So if someone starts you know, lower because they're, you know, a woman because of inherent biases or what have you, then if you ask for current salary, then people think they can offer people a lower salary and still get them in the job. When we argue in the article, it, it's bad business practice and it's bad moral leadership. And I... And the sh- alternative is just asking them what they'd like to be paid or letting them come up with a number that they are asking for or just saying you're hired for the job and this is what we're offering you without ever having a preconception of what they previously had made or what they would ask for or what they think their parameters are. Yeah, I mean, I think to a degree, all of the above. I think that the employer should have a sense of what is this, what is the value of a person in this position. I think the person that's applying for the job and negotiating for their salary should have a value idea in terms of where they think they're valued, both what they need and both where they feel they are in the market or even slightly above the market, and right. what they were making previously shouldn't matter. So, for example, if I was a you know program coordinator at a JCC making forty or fifty thousand um, dollars, but I have I, I have all the potential and all the chops and all the experience through other means to do an you know an eighty thousand dollar job, a ninety thousand dollar job elsewhere. If they want me and I want them and I want 80-90, and they have in the budget 80-90, then that's what right. I should be paid. If I say, well, my current salary is 50, they're immediately going to think, okay, well, I can get this person for 60 or 70, um, and they'll probably move. And I just think that's the wrong move. I think that is saving in the short term. It's the first step towards not really investing in somebody. Mm-hmm. That's why they're going to leave in one, two, three years. If they feel valued because you paid them what you could pay them, as opposed to what you could get away with paying them, then they're going to stay. They're going to feel valued. They're going to feel really excited. And that actually happened to me. I really, you know, I was really excited about the compensation that I was making when I first started at JTS. And it wasn't, you know, I, I loved the job. I was like, wow, you're, you're really valuing me at that. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. I, w- I, c- I couldn't have imagined, you know, at this level of my career making that. But obviously, that's the value that I was at. And that's the value thought that I was at. I'm going to do a really great job. Wasn't making, right. you know, a ton of money. It was still, you know, a not nonprofit Jewish salary, but that, that meant something. And I think that extends to my theory that is, I think, being proven more and more by Zenyap Tan, a professor of MIT in the, in the corporate world and other places, that compensation that demonstrates value matters. It's not the number one. It's not even the number two motivation in our field. But people who are really motivated by money are in different fields. We need to think strategically about how we can compensate people and how we can be fair to people. And that latest article that Tahila and I wrote was just kind of the latest chapter in that. One that is happening in the state of Massachusetts, that it's being advocated for in the state of New York. Let us, the Jewish nonprofit field, be a model for everybody else by instituting this policy. Yeah. So there's a few things that come to mind as as you were speaking. The first is as a job hunter, as somebody who's seeking a job, 
you know, seeing a salary range, seeing them post, this is what is the expectation of this position first really helps you decide, you know, what position you're applying to and what level of responsibility they're assuming that position is going to be. And so for you to be able to decide, okay, am I applying to this position or not? Well, I, you know, can't make $45,000 a year, but I don't think I'm qualified for 140. You know, with that transparency up front, it makes the job of a job seeker a lot easier in understanding those parameters of the job as opposed to every single job, which doesn't disclose until maybe you're in the interview and you're like, oh, this pays how much? Or, oh, okay, well, I'm like way out of my league to really gauge yourself of what you feel you're capable of doing. And I remember too, when I was was hiring for a a full-time cancer educator in my previous job, and I asked every applicant, what is your salary range? And none of them would, would tell me. And I couldn't, you know, it's hard for me to say, you know, your salary is, we have $60,000 and that's it. And that's what I said to them up front because they were all looking for 120 and above. And so maybe right. that was on me to be, have been transparent about putting that on the job description. Hey, this job might sound like it's a higher level of responsibility, but this is the reality of what this position is able yeah. to pay. Well, you know, it's interesting, Michelle. I think in any negotiation, the other person wants the other person to say the number first, right? right? As the manager or the hiring manager, you want to hear where their range is so then you can adjust or vice versa. So right. I and think we're ta- I mean, I was taught in graduate school, don't blink, right? Don't be the first one to blink. Don't tell them your number because as just as you mentioned, right? If you tell them your number, that's where they're going to think they can get you at. I'm actually thinking of changing my own philosophy in that. I think if you know what you want, and you know what you're valued at, it's okay to speak first. Mm-hmm. And if you speak first and you get, let's use real numbers, and you get 80, if they were going to pay you a little more, then I recommend that the employer does the right thing and pay you a little more. Mm-hmm. But if you get what you asked for, you got what you asked for. Which but means- you're speaking more to the employer than you are to the employee. No, I'm, I'm no. speaking to the candidate too. I think that's, it's, it's incumbent upon both the employer to get a best sense of what this person in this position could be worth not just at the market rate, but, you know, in order for them to stick around, but also from the candidate level, what can I be worth? What can I be worth? Not just from my experience, but from my potential. And if you really win them over in the, in the interview, Mm -hmm. then, you know, you can prove, you can't be way out of the ballpark, but you can prove that you're worth that value. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think someone's got to blink first. If you're going to be the one to do it, why don't you get out ahead of the conversation? Um, look, it's it's always a very challenging, very stressful thing to negotiate for a job after you've probably, many people spend many, many weeks and months or longer finding mm-hmm. a job and finally get an offer. You don't want to blow it if it's a job that you want. At the same time, you want to set up yourself for success. If you're not right. set up for your success, it's not worth investing in this relationship, whether it's going to be a year or several. Well, and that's also your best negotiating spot, right? If you... You can negotiate five and ten thousand dollars at that initial point, and you know obviously it's how you do your job, whether or not you get raises along the way or position changes or or promotions. But that's where it starts. That's the you know the most important raise you're going to get is that negotiation point, and from there, then it's you know maybe smaller increments, cost of living increments. You know then it's work based. Well, but you know, but Michelle, I think I think it's important to difference between salary and compensation, right? Mm -hmm. Salary is important because it pays the bills, right? You know, free phone doesn't pay your rent, right? Um, And whatever your 
base salary is when you start the job is what your future raises or promotions or merit increases is going to be based off of. So that's very important. At the same time, you really have to look at the whole package. You have to look at um, what are the other benefits that you're getting, both tangible, like, you know, premiums for medical, dental, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, opportunities for retirement, you know, transportation. And then also just the value of, you know, your job flexibility, you know, whether you can work a couple of days from home, whether this allows you to be a present person at home, whether you have a spouse or a family or a, you know, significant other. So you really have to look at the whole package. And I would gladly take a job with a little bit less money if it was going to contribute to my long-term growth, if I was going to have a great supervisor, mentor, if it was really going to be doing what I love to do. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's nuanced. I think my, my, my general thesis is I will stay for as long as I can possibly stay it to employers. Don't try to get people at where at the lowest common denominator of what you can hire them for. Try to get them at a level, salary and compensation in general, where you can afford, but thinking at the long term that this person could be a really fantastic long-term investment if you give them that little extra or that little extra um, and try to be transparent as much as possible. Um, and then to candidates, it's really up to you to do your homework to get a sense of where you're valued at. And we don't have, you know, kind of JewishSalary.com. You know, there's kind of mini surveys out there for kind of micro fields in our field. Um, but people will share kind of what their experiences are, what rates generally will be. People can call me up. I have kind of an anecdotal mm-hmm. sense of most jobs. Um, so you can walk in there smart. Yeah. Well, I was talking with Elena from JPro, and mm-hmm. we were talking a lot about. Oh, about our our position titles, right? And so even thinking about how that translates together, right? So the way that my position as director of development in one organization pays X and has a certain amount of level of responsibility, but director of development at at another maybe smaller or larger organization has completely different parameters and completely different skill set and pay. And those are some of the things when you talk about having a list or having uh, some kind of regular survey where we can look at what are people getting paid for these yeah. jobs was a comparable going rate. And maybe it's director of development here, but it's managing director for fundraising there, right? And there's no consistency in that to be able to gauge yourself or know what the ladder looks like or, or what those next steps are. Um, but I wanted to push a little bit more on this idea of additional compensation to just salary. And I, I get the other benefits, but what else could employers be doing that's, that's more than that, right? You talk a little bit about your training? Is it making sure it's a fun environment? Is it making sure that your employees, you know, you've got your set of employees, they've got their salary, they've got their benefits, right? The day-to-day, how do you make that Mm day-to-day a compelling culture and environment that doesn't feel like you're sitting in front of your computer doing your job in your silo, going to your meetings, right? How do you break up that so somebody comes home from work and says, I had a really great day at work because... X, Y, or Z, or because my employer, you know, values these things. So I'm going to answer that question now, but um, allow me to go back to job titles and the inconsistency of of our field uh, afterwards. Um, I think there are three main motivators for most people, knowing that everyone's a little different in terms of feeling valued and feeling like you'll grow and that you're going to enjoy yourself. First of all, you have to enjoy the job content. No matter how much an employer can do to make sure you enjoy your job, you got to enjoy the job and you have to be smart going Mm -hmm. into the job and understanding the job description well enough that this is something that you'll enjoy doing, even the challenging parts that overall most days you'll enjoy work. No one's going to enjoy work every day, although I feel like I enjoy work almost every day. 
So in addition to salary, uh, the two things that one, I think the Jewish world is, is overall lacking, but getting better at, and one that I think the Jewish world is doing much better at, but is still inconsistent. Uh, one is uh, effective management or management training, and one is professional development. I continue to get a sense that most people in the Jewish nonprofit field that have either the title or have the responsibility of managing others were not properly trained in how to manage others. Certainly, if they got any type of that training when they were in graduate school and they weren't managing others, it's you know a long time since then they became a manager. Um, and they're not getting the ongoing updates as to best ways for effective management. So I think if an employer really wants their employees to feel that they're having a great time at work, then they need to know that their managers are um, checking in meaningfully, checking in with their employees on a weekly basis, not just on the to-do list, but also asking them about how they're enjoying their job, what's challenging them, where they need growth, just kind of that coffee talk, if you will, that allows people to feel like they're being heard. It sounds so simple, but it goes so far. And it's actually something that we try to model when we work with our master's students in the Davidson School. When they have internships, we ask their mentors to model that type of management. So our students will model that when they're in the field. Um, And within that, making sure they get regular positive and regular constructive feedback. Everyone is doing something right, and everyone is doing something that they can improve upon. Mm -hmm. And if the manager takes a priority with all of their direct supervisors to give people that feedback in an empathic and also direct way, then people will just feel that they care about their growth. And I I have yet to meet a person that is not motivated by that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Effective management. And knowing that there's a place for growth, even if I just started a job and I really should just be focusing on that specific set of projects and tasks for the first six months, year, two years, that there's the sense that I could grow. Even if it's a small organization, I can be able to get new responsibilities, get new ways of challenging myself. No one wants to do the same thing. Not I don't say no one, but most people, certainly that we would relate to you, you and me, Michelle, um, want growth, want different, you know, variable right. opportunities over time. Um, especially folks that are what Mort Mendel calls in his book, It's All About Who, which I love. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of like the uh, enthusiastic A's. They're really spectacular people. And even, right. you know, Everyone's spectacular in their own ways, but certainly many spectacular people. And you, it seems like, have found a place at GTS where you've been given that, right? You've had already, is it three positions, four positions there? Uh, This is my third position. Um, I would say in my career, I've had good managers and not so good managers. And there's always something that I've learned from from all the people that Mm -hmm. have managed me. Um, but let me just, you know, add uh, a second piece to your question. Also, is professional development, and I don't mean sending someone to a conference every year and say, "Well, that was your professional development," or "What class do you want to go to?" But really thinking with your supervisor, with your leadership team, what ways can I grow, and how can I go out there and be active and reflective in terms of my growth? So, if you're going to send me to the GA and take a whole bunch of sessions, or to Hillel Global Assembly if I'm in the Hillel world, or to you know this certificate program at a university, what's my expectation when I come back to my mm-hmm. um, organization, and what's your expectation? What's the accountability so that I grow and challenge myself? I think if there was much more accountability in the realm of professional development, coupled with the effective management, 
coupled with, I know that I'm getting paid what they can really pay me and I feel valued and I like my job. That's the magic formula. And I don't think it's that hard. I mean, part of the reason I really wanted to do the Eli talk was because when I read the New York Times piece, it was an op-ed, I think Jonah Sarah in July of 2015 on the good job strategy. And then I picked up the book by Zainab Tan. It was no longer just a dream that I had an idea in my head. This was actually happening. This is what Costco did. What Craig Trim does, like, and I, I see no reason why the Jewish world can't do it just because we're not like a big organization. I think you know we ha- we can have the resources too. And is that the hurdle? Is it that few people feel like they don't have the financial resources of a big company, or they feel like they don't have the time because there's so much to do and such little staff? It's I think it's going from a scarcity model to an abundance model. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes when there's a period for growth in an organization, organizations might think about adding training. Or it might think about adding like management support to the budget, right? Mm -hmm. Things that you don't need to survive, but will make you much better over time. The first time there's a hint of, you know, budget restraint or austerity or cuts, it's the first thing that goes every single time, Um, almost every single time. And that's, to me, that's silly. Uh, To me, that's saying, let's just do what we can to get by. Let's not try to invest in growth. You know, people build new buildings so they can last for 50 years. They build new programs. We need to invest in our staff in the same way because that will actually increase our profit margins over time and will increase our value from, you know, bringing the talent in and keeping it. And they're the people that make our programs and services successful. It's the people. It's not the buildings. And your budget is a reflection of your values as an organization. So if you, you know, have a big line item for your board members flying in for a board meeting, but a very tiny line item for your staff members, you know, that shows what you value, right? You value your board members get, not that you shouldn't, but it really is when you look at your light items, it's not just, okay, how do we want to allocate this? It's looking at it as a value document, as how are our values of the way that we spend money reflected here? Is it in the salary line? Is it in the professional development line? Is it in the way that we do our programs? Or is it in maybe some places that we need to reassess? Are those our values, the way that we're spending our money? And do we need to make adjustments? So the good news, Michelle, is, and this goes back to the job titles and inconsistency, mm-hmm. uh, that there is a either real or foreseen crisis in the Jewish world is that we're losing all our leaders, right? All of the baby boomers that have been the executives, they're all either retiring now or within the next five years. Um, a lot of folks that are running Jewish organizations are concerned about where's the next where's the next set of leaders that mm-hmm. are going to take over our organizations, which might feel odd to people like you and me, Michelle, because like we're right here, right? Like right. we want to, we may not be ready quite yet for some of them. Um, but that has caused a lot of people that have been very generous and philanthropic to our world and other leaders to say we need to do something about this. So that's what helped forms, you know, what Golly Cooks is right now running with Leading Edge, that is creating data that is training people at the top to start changing our culture in this way. Mm -hmm. I I love that you mentioned Alana Azen, uh, who I have the pleasure of working with. She's our new executive director. I'm on the board of JPro, really positioning how we can think of organizations like JPro as an opportunity to change our culture so we can build a new pipeline of talent or even just the folks that make the decisions of who the execs recognize and the pipeline's already there and funneling, Mm -hmm. uh, let's say, to, to these executive positions over time, and also just thinking about how we do our HR work better. So you mentioned job titles. A problem with our field is that you can be a program coordinator in one organization and make $40,000, you can be a program coordinator in another organization and make Mm $80,000. That is never mind location, you know, never mind culture and other values. 
I might make things inconsistent. So I always tell people to look beyond the job title. Job titles are important, but the meat of the job, the description is important and trying to be as, as transparent as possible about what the person's actually doing and being responsible for and then relate it back to that salary, which is actually what, you know, leading places to work survey that a leading edge just put out last year is doing. I think Bali even said there's like 3,000 job titles in our organization, yeah. which is ridiculous. And so I also, I don't ever trust job descriptions. I never really feel like when I have a job description that I'm actually doing the job that's described. I always find myself in either saying, well, that's not really my job. That's this person's job. But the person who wrote this doesn't really realize that, or I'm going to end up doing X, Y, and Z that was never on my job description in the first place. Or, you know, this little tiny line item you wrote is actually like, 90% 90% of the job, whereas all the rest of it is really easy and like much smaller pieces of the job. So, so let, let me, let me give uh, somewhat of a get out of jail free card to our colleagues. Correct and effective job descriptions are really hard to write. Mm-hmm. And we are in a field that two generations ago was very much, you know, social services, social work, everyone running it were social workers. Right. It wasn't cachet to be an MBA and, you know, run a Jewish federation. We swung the pendulum for a host of reasons in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s to being run like businesses, but kind of still kind of stuck some for some organizations in a mom and pop thing and really focusing on the business end, but that's not necessarily translating to HR business in part because of what we talked about recently. That was much more like how we get to make the profit margin. We don't want to like, you know, add all this overhead that's going to hurt it. I think now the pendulum is swinging somewhat back to the middle of kind of business with the heart and focusing on talent, HR, to really achieve what we want to achieve, which I think is sustainable, strong Jewish organizational future. You know, never mind by the fact that, you know, what Jewish professional work is to serve our community is changing. You know, we didn't have a Hazon and a Lab Shul and a Hadar and, you know, bend the ark and repair the world 10 or 15 years ago. Or even all of these foundations that are, are pumping money into new and exciting, whether they're long lasting or not. You know, there's every year there's 100 or 150 new organizations that have a new idea for a new way of engaging. And that's a whole other conversation to whether that's beneficial for the field or not beneficial for the field. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Our next episode is with Eliza Mazor, the executive director of Bikurim. She discusses the merger between four organizations dealing with innovation in the Jewish community, how the merger came to be, and what implications there are for the larger Jewish community. Let's hear a little bit from Eliza. Well, the first thing I say to anyone who's kind of on the path to a new idea is to say, first of all, do some research. Before you go running off and starting something new, go see what's been tried, go see what's out there, go see who your comrades in arms might be, you know, who are the other people that might join forces with you. The two things I always caution people against is reinventing the wheel. If it's already been done, then at least go learn from that experience before you try to go do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, going it alone because entrepreneurship is very, very lonely and it's hard. And it's a slog. And if you're going to do something new, even if you're an entrepreneur doing it inside an organization, you need people to help you. I hope you want to listen to more of my conversation with Eliza from Bikurim. But for now, let's get back to my conversation. We have an interesting business model. You know, we think about who our end users are. Um, in the for-profit world, the end users are is whoever's giving you money, mm-hmm. right? You know, whoever's buying the widget, whoever's buying the shoe, yeah. whoever's buying the ticket to the football game. Here, we care about 
who's coming to our programs, but oftentimes they're not the ones paying or paying significantly mm-hmm. into those programs. You know, David Breifman has an Eli talk about the cost of free, and that is not to disparage birthright or programs that give things for free. There's value in doing that, but it also makes us realize that really the end user, the end stakeholder are the people that are funding these programs. So when you have a few sets of foundations funding all of these programs, we have to think about what makes it sustainable over time. So we can make it, make it understand what makes it sustainable over time. And so those that are funding us, whether it's a foundation or a federation or it's fee-for-service or you know an individual philanthropic giving, they have a deep understanding of what our values needs to be investing in the, you know, the HR frame, because that's important. And I think that, you know, I think it's an evolution. I, I come to it from a very positive, from a very idealistic, aspirational point of view, because I refuse to do it any other way. Right. And I'm not saying I'm not realistic, but I think we have to understand who is supporting us financially, what are our moral and mission-driven goals, and how do we actually achieve and get there? And I think we're figuring out that talent at a very investment at a very deep level matters. You're seeing it now with Hillel, you and Hillel mm-hmm. getting, you know, really strong uh, support to do professional development. You're seeing it in JCCs more and more. As I'm learning more, the new JCC Association Executive, Darone Krakow, is, is a big proponent of this home here, which mm-hmm. makes me really excited. And I think kind of the more, you know, again, leading edge and JPRO and um, I think other organizations and hopefully other organizational movements uh, will continue to follow suit. And I'm hoping, I mean, and not that this is a bad thing, but I've more so in Los Angeles because that's just a community that I know as a Jewish professional who is striving for whatever I'm striving for, watching EDs of our organizations get hired from outside of the profession, get brought in from the for-profit world. And whether it's because they value their experience, the for-profit world and hoping that it'll come to our nonprofit world and somehow magically translate it's always been very discouraging to me every time I see that or every time I see someone with experience outside the community coming in because all I can think of is like, really, there is nobody who's immersed and knowledgeable. I feel so superior, right? That only somebody who could understand the Jewish community and has been in the Jewish community could do work in the Jewish community, which obviously isn't correct or true, nor is there anything wrong with bringing over somebody from the for-profit world and hiring them into your positions. But as somebody whom this is a career for, it is discouraging when I when you see that or when you you see somebody who was on the board of an organization and now is is the professional and it feels like either I can do this job better than you can or there isn't a pool, right? There isn't applicants that right. they thought were right for that position. So I think one way I can respond to that is to share a little more about the work that I'm doing at the Davidson School now. We've framed some of the programs that we've been doing for a while and some that we're innovating into our leadership common space. And a hallmark of that work is our leadership institutes. And we believe firmly, whether we're training folks to run day schools, run Jewish early childhood centers, run JCCs, they need to be grounded in leadership through a Jewish lens. What do I mean by that? I mean that however they lead, however they set vision, however they fundraise, however they manage, however they set a course for an organization, it needs to be rooted in in Jewish content. And it needs to be rooted, rooted in a sense of text and tradition and ritual and history, because I think that there's a lot to be informed there. And that is what makes it unique and distinct to running a successful Jewish organization. We believe that very deeply. Now, why are people hired from outside? You know, I think it's a question of what are boards of these organizations looking for? What are their priorities? And it's not to say that their priorities are wrong when they say we need to bring someone in that's a good businessman or woman and a good fundraiser. Right. 
And I think there is a challenge to that in the sense that, yes, they can fundraise. Yes, they can, you know, you know, make crucial decisions. But they, do they know what they're fundraising and leading for? You know, mm-hmm. to run a church organization is not like running, you know, Stride Right. And I bring up Stride Right because, you know, Jerry Silverman, who I've got to know, has run JFNA. He came from Stride Right, is running, I think Ted's and then Stride Right, is running Foundation for Jewish Camp, and he had to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, you know, certainly the Foundation for Jewish Campus really grew that organization spectacularly. So it's not to say it's a wrong decision to move, but they, there's a sense of Jewish content knowledge and grounding that you have to do. And I think there's a couple of things to kind of combat this trend. Uh, one is training boards to identify what they really should be looking for. And at Leading Edge just doing a lot of that work. Mm-hmm. And also giving the talent that's growing up in the Jewish world the skills they need to compete. I think there's an right. argument that we're doing great in the Jewish world. You know, our generation and the generation above us, we're kind of rising up to the management. We've learned a lot, but I don't think we necessarily proved that we can hit the number one, or at least how we position ourselves as number one is not equaling what the people who make the hiring decisions are. Not, not in all cases, we're mm-hmm. making the statements. So I think if we properly train our leaders to leadership development, you see Wexner doing that, Schusterman doing that, you know, universities, including my work, mm-hmm. doing that. and there's now more movement to properly training the people that run these organizations at the lay level to hire properly, then I still think we'll see people from the outside coming in. And that's okay. But I do think it will change to more and more people from the inside coming to the top, which I think do, more people do want over time. And my personal hope that it'll become more gender equitable at all levels. Um, I think that is something that continues to be of challenge for the Jewish world. And I think if it continues, it will become an embarrassment. But right now I just see it as a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the longevity too, right? You talk about pay, you talk about compensation, you talk about people in organizations feeling valued in their work. And I think the idea of holding on to your employees, right? Love them or lose them. The idea that the longer you can keep an employee in your organization, moving them through the ranks, you know, investing in their growth, utilizing from their growth and making them part of your family over time and acknowledging that in different positions, that is far more beneficial to your organization to have a 10-year employee who's done six different things than 10 employees who've been there for a year. And it'll also save you a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. Turnover costs, you know, people are like, how does it cost 75000 to replace someone that is making 50000 When you think about productivity and time wasted and all those meetings and all those interviews and someone who has to learn the position to get to where the person was before that wastes a lot of you know real and potential dollars so that you know that's something to think about i will say though there's a counter argument that i know i think adam simon who used to work at schusterman and others of me that like if they're really great you should be okay to set them free they'll come back right you have you know really invest in this person but there really is no growth for there you're a small company or they're just really not as an opportunity for them you can say you know michelle we love you we want you to stay here but we don't know where you can grow and i think it's time for you to grow so Mm -hmm. we encourage you to like try something else and hopefully we'll be able to come back i think that's fair too well that's a lovely place to be (laughs) i I mean i don't know i mean that's a lovely place to be if that is the case and obviously you know speaks to good management can do that but i feel like in in order to get there takes a number of years of investment and Mm -hmm. figuring out right what makes your employee happy what is it that they're frustrated with how do you help manage those frustrations in a way that they feel satisfied in their work five years six years on the road because especially for young younger employees the idea of working somewhere for 10-15 years is mind-blowing what do you mean be here for 10 years that feels so long right when your turnover rate is is two three years and you're constantly kind of 
tossed back into the market. Staying somewhere for that long is like a pipe dream that you're like, I don't know if that's really, I could find a place that I could actually be at for 10 years that I could actually feel satisfied for that long. It doesn't feel real, right? It feels like you're always going to have to be moving around to climb that ladder to find that next opportunity in your career. You know, perhaps I'm an anomaly because I've been in the field post-college, this will be 14 years. And two of the organizations in that 14 years period, I was at for, you know, five and a half and now six and a half going on seven. Mm-hmm. But I had two or three jobs during that each of those times. Right. I would think less about how many years am I in an organization, more towards, am I doing something new every couple of years? Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps, you know, as we get more advanced in our careers, as we hit kind of middle, you know, middle of our careers, we may want to be in a place for a longer amount of time. You know, then for a lot of people, you're you know, I could speak personally, you hit a family life. And sometimes it's not wrong to have, you know, some stability and your priorities change over time. So everyone has a kind of a different trajectory. I think if we just solely think in the work frame that, you know, doesn't show the whole picture. But I think, you know, any smart person needs to be thinking a little bit about where I'm going to go next. But, you know, depending where you're at in a new job, not obsessing over it too much. It's good to have Enjoying the stability and and where you're at in the presence to be valued as well. So Mark, you, you mentioned you have young children, you do this work with JPro, you're writing these articles, you have your regular day job. How do you balance it all? How do you stay grounded and focused in your work? What do you do for, for yourself and for your family? Yeah, so that's, I think, my biggest challenge. I really want to be, you know, ambitious in my work, and I really want to be a present dad and a present husband. Um, That is both priorities, number one. I think family would go ahead of the other. And I want to have me time. (laughs) So it's it's difficult. I feel like I have very little time for me, but I also feel like that's okay right now. Um, My son is almost, is 10 months almost. My daughter's almost four. My wife is a, a busy and wonderful rabbi that has, you know, funky hours, but that also works to our advantage. So I work at a place right now where I have to work probably 50 more hours a week, but I have flexibility as to when I'm working. Doesn't always have to be in the office, can be home on Fridays, can be flexible with my time as long as I get my work done. And I feel like I'm in a very fortunate position. But when I'm at work all day, I come home and then I put the kids to bed at night and that takes me to like 9, 9.30. And then I wake up most mornings at 4.30 or 5 and go to the gym just so I can move myself around a few times a week, get the blood going, if you will. And the time goes really quickly. I try to be valuing with my minutes, even if it's just like my son is sleeping on me and it's just me and him here. I'm going to turn on a podcast because forget about reading a book. I'll stimulate myself through reading a podcast. I have to be committed to the things that I'm committed to. And I also have to be okay if not everything gets done that I want to get done. You know, I want to create an album for you know the last year of life for our family right. when the heck I'm going to do that because I'm often really tired by the time I want to do that and I also when it comes to work making sure that I don't get hung up in oh I got 50 emails to write back to well I'll get to those what do I really need to get done right and try to focus on that but you know look, so is I, it list making is that how you keep yourself organized do you I, I, I do write it notes <laughs> Wait, I do write, yeah, you are the concrete. Um, I do write a to-do list every day. Sometimes I write, like I write to-do lists all the time. I'm like, am I just writing to-do lists? I'm actually doing something. Right. I think it is checking in with myself and probably checking in with Mara a lot and say, you know, are we really making the most of our time? And trying very, I'm not very good at this, trying very hard to be very present and not think about the other thing when I'm doing the thing that's in front of me, especially when I'm with my kids or out to dinner, we're at services, 
or, or when I'm at work and thinking about kids. I really just try to just be present in what you're doing. The other things that you need to get done will get done and don't make your list too long, right? You know, I've got work, I got family, try to work out every so often. I try to stimulate my brain on rare occasion, pick up my guitar other than playing for my daughter every night, like next to never. And I love playing guitar and songwriting. So I also know that my kids are not going to be one in four forever and that there'll still be a lot of work to do with them and engage with them a ton when they're older, but you'll have, I'll have different time. Right. You know, one thing I've learned from reading like Stephen Covey books is that like, if you don't get it all done on the way in the one day, look at your week and what can you get done in the week? And I think God willing, I can live a lot many years. And if I don't get some stuff done this year, I'll get some stuff done in future years. So I used to write out a what's on my plate picture and segmented, right? What, what am I doing? (laughs) What work, what's family, what's fun, which fun was like being on the board of a synagogue. Uh, If you call that fun, I do. But that's, you know, I really had to look at one big picture. What is everything that I've taken on? And how do I prioritize my time to fit in the things that are most important to me to really be able to visualize that? I really thought I was like, okay, there's so much going on. I just have to write it all out and put it all in one place to really be able to look at how I'm spending time. And, I, and you have to remember like where you are in life, right? I'm not 25. When I'm living in New York, you know, I'm single. And I did a lot. Like, I went out a lot. I worked. I had like multiple jobs. I was in graduate school. I did this. I did that. I was like, I got a lot of stuff done. <laughs> right. But I didn't have a family. You know, I wasn't married yet. Um, I didn't have a big job that was taking up a lot of my time. So, you know, you get different things done now. And, you know, I think they say about life, forgive the cliche that, you know, the days are long, but the years are short. I'll know Mm -hmm. I'll wake up one day and I'll be a lot older and my kids will be a lot older. And I don't want to live with regrets and be like, oh, if I only spent more time with Noah and Asher. So like a lot of time with them and take advantage of fortunate situations. So I think we need to give ourselves a break and just think about what's really important and try to focus on what's not really important, knowing that some days you're not going to do the stuff that you love. But most days, if you can do a lot of what you love, then you're in really good shape. So is that your advice for our audience? It sounds like pretty good advice. <laughs> Unless you have some more work-related... So I think it's very that's a very general advice. You know, I think I would try to tweak it depending on each person that I would speak to. Focus on your me time and use technology to your advantage and not disadvantage. So an advantage, I have someone of a long commute. I can do emails on the train because I got my iPhone. Um, but sometimes I will specifically not do that listen to NPR or, or just music and veg out my head for 45 minutes just because I can. Because mm-hmm. sometimes during the workday, my commute is kind of the only time that I just can do nothing. Right. And nothing time is important time. I, I definitely believe to the school of if you're a creative person, some of the best times that you can have is when you're like, quote unquote, bored. Then all of a sudden your mind gets to wander and creativity arises. You kind of do your best work. And then when you're, you know, in front of the computer, in front of your learners or whatever you're doing in the Jewish world, you're kind of more set and ready to go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not, you're not being lazy. If you're watching like five hours of TV every day for a week, I'm a little jealous, but I'm also not, <laughs> you know, right. like that might not be the best use of your time, but unless you're an you're idiot and that's important and no offense to the folks that do that, but you know, trying to give yourself you know, that little bit of me time, really invest a lot in your relationships, you know, care about your work and know that it's a part of your life. It's not all your life. Right. It's the paycheck that pays your rent. Hopefully it pays your rent. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Your, your phone right now. Yeah. And look, if you want to make a lot more money and then, you know, be philanthropic, more power to you. To me, um, and I know to many of, you know, our close colleagues, Michelle, like we care, we care about how we're spending our days and it's important for us to spend our days doing the work that we care about. That's the way that we give. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really give a lot of props to folks that 
you know, can do, you know, really exceptional work in the corporate sector and then, you know, are very generous, uh, with, you know, with, uh, with what they've, what they've earned and give back to our community. So I think there's a whole bunch of ways to give. Right. And not only just of their money, I mean, of their, their time on our boards and their willingness to give us their expertise in, in certain ways that help guide our organizations in really fantastic ways. That's I've always in fundraising. I'm like, I don't want your paycheck because it's a paycheck. I want a paycheck into you, right? I don't want just somebody to give me their money. I want your voice. I want your input. I want you to feel a part of whatever you're giving your money to because you work really hard for that money. Yeah, and that's always been really important to me when I think about fundraising. It's such a cliche to say it's all about relationships, but I, I've sat in a couple of seminars with John Risquet, the former head of UJA, who used to work at JTS, or used to work at the 92nd Street Y. Right. And he says, you know, how, how can I make what you want to come true come true? And let's work together to make that happen. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about, oh, I got a million dollars. A million dollars for what? Right. A great job. So what? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, think big thoughts and try to, you know, make great stuff happen if you have those ideas in your head. Right. Great. And so what is next for you, Mark? You've tackled some of these things with your HR. You've done this great Eli talk, this great yeah. series with Jewish Philanthropy. The article you just came out with about transparency that was fairly news. I'm not sure if you've already started thinking about the next topic to tackle or to think about. Yeah, you know, I'm really, uh, I'm really digging my the the newer the latest tile I have at JTS, the managing director of leadership commons role. I've kind of been in for less than a year at this point. I'm really digging into what makes for effective leadership in Jewish communal life and what makes for successful organizations as a result. Uh, a lot of people have written books about this already. Mm-hmm. I am figuring out the learning mode. Or I'm in learning mode of figuring that out, what that means for me personally, and then how can I help influence the rest of the world's Jewish world as a result. I, it's interesting. Every time I post something on Jewish philanthropy, I'm like, well, I don't know when my next article is going to be. And then something comes up a few months later. Right. Um, I want to write something when I feel like I have something to write. Are you uh, able, when you when you write those posts, are you able to get feedback? Do people call you or email you and say, great job, or that was really terrible what you wrote, or we don't agree with you? I mean, or is it just kind of you're throwing it out there and, and you yeah, I mean, I, I'll get some emails saying, you know, I really liked your piece, um, and I always ask for more feedback. I really, I got to tell you, I really love the back and forth after the $54,000 piece. And mm-hmm. there's those ones, but the main one in 2003, there was a lot of chatter about it. And it was inter- It was such a good learning experience to see where people were at. And I know mm-hmm. that we had a thorn or, you know, we, we, we hit a nerve rather, but we, I think, learned together kind of what this means to all of us. And I think allowed our community to be a little bit smarter as a result. So I'm always hopeful that, you know, whatever I might put out there or whatever program we might put together, that we're able to learn. You know, our philosophy and the work that I do is, you know, we want to bring people together to strengthen our Jewish future. And if we have important conversations, that can lead to better training, that can lead to better research, that can lead to better publications or more thought leadership. And that mix of all those things can really you know, advance our world. You know, I have this, this niche is that I want us to be the best places for us to work because I just mm-hmm. think that'll allow us to be better successful organizations as a result. Absolutely. Any last lingering thoughts, Steph, about your future work, uh, current work, things for our audience? Yeah. You know, I, I, too many people that I meet say, you know, I kind of fell into this work. I think my dream is that in time, more and more people say, no, I wanted to be a Jewish professional from the time I was younger. I wanted to be a Jewish educator. If we can be much more intentional about ways that we can identify 
talent and get them excited about the work that we do and having us all work together that we're not just Hillel and JCC and Federation and education, you know, we're all these things together, you know, that excites me. And me personally, like, I don't know, I, I couldn't have imagined being where I am now 10 years ago or even six or seven years ago. So I, I'm, I just love enjoying the ride. And I, I'm that managing right now, how to really enjoy my work and enjoy my family. That's fantastic. Well, I really appreciate not only your time here, Jay, but the work that you do in these really important matters, because having these conversations and having an outlet for these conversations, you're brave to put your ideas and your thoughts out there for praise and criticism and uh, to be as involved as you are in these really important issues that make our industry a fantastic place to work. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Mark. Well, I am honored to be a part of this, Michelle. Thank you, Mark, for joining us on the podcast. When I think about the HR issues that Mark and I spoke about, it seems to me that HR is not just limited to a person or department. It really is the values that permeate our entire organization. When we look at how we treat our staff and what motivates them to do the excellent work that we we need them to do and also makes them happy and fulfilled in the work that they do. There was another recent article in eJewish Philanthropy talking about how we utilize our staff meeting time. And there's a wonderful line in it that said that we need to treat our staff as human beings and not human doings. And I really, that struck a chord with me. I printed it out. I put it on my bulletin board at work. I think it's easy to look at the tasks that one person is given to perform and not look at the person as a whole. And when we look a little more holistically at the people in our organization, we can determine our HR practices from that holistic viewpoint. Mark mentioned a book. It's all about who, and we'll have a a new book recommendation list on our website with a link to that book if you'd like to know more. Another book that came to mind that I've been reading recently is called Drive, talking about what motivates us. And that book highlights a lot of things that Mark and I spoke about as far as your base salary. Those companies who work around a bonus model or a sales compensation model, feel like that's what's going to motivate their employees, that those are the things that money is what's going to make them be a better seller, make them be more motivated to do their work. When in actuality, it's the intrinsic motivators that do this for us. So when you talk about something like Wikipedia that's free, no one is motivated by the money they will get for the work that they do on those pages. The motivation is much more intrinsic. So after we've met that base humanistic need of a salary, of base compensation, how are we encouraging the motivation in other ways? How are we looking at the way that we incentivize our employees' work in a myriad of different ways that are beyond salary and that help keep employees happy and motivated and with you for for the long haul and which then permeates the entire organization when you have happy employees, you have a productive organization. And another aspect in that book talks about free time, talks about 20% of, I think this is something Google does, 20% of your time you can use on whatever you want to do, whatever project. So say that I was at an organization and this podcast was was part of that, right? That this podcast was something I did on my 
quote unquote free time that helped innovate for the organization as opposed to doing it on my off time. Just a small example of looking at how we treat our employees and the work they do in the organization, maybe looking at different models that might might work for us and our organization and our culture. So if you know someone that you would like to hear about, I have a wonderful lineup of guests coming your way. But if there's someone you think uh, is doing something really interesting, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to have suggestions for interviews and ways that we can bring more of the community together and let you hear the voices of those leading our institutions and, and our startup and everything in between. And thank you for listening. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowpodcast.wordpress.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.